0: One, two,
1: three, four. What is the purpose of education and leading an examined life? How are we educating students for the future in this age of AI and the rapidly changing workplace? What is the
0: importance of the humanities? In this conversation, Mia sat down with Michael S. Roth, the president of Wesleyan University and a Wesleyan graduate himself. He's been a professor in history and the humanities since 1983, was the founding director of the Scripps College Humanities Institute and was the Associate Director of the Getty Research Institute. His scholarly interests center on how people make sense of the past, and he has authored eight books around this topic, including his latest, The Student, A Short History. And now, their conversation. Michael
1: S. Roth, welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast.
2: Thank you. It's good to be with you.
1: So we're passionate about education and lifelong learning here at The Creative Process, and we've really been enjoying uh, The Student, A Short History. And of course, this is something that uh, you write about. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to write this book.
2: Well, I'm the president of Wesleyan University, and I've been the president here since 2007. Before that, I was the president of California College of the Arts. All the while, I've been teaching while I've been president, and then I was a professor. So I guess I've been teaching college students since 1983 or a little bit before. And then as a kid, I was a tutor in high school and and college. So... I've always enjoyed working with students. And I guess I realize at some point that's because I enjoy being a student. The joy of teaching for me is learning new stuff from the students I work with. And so I've found in the last many years that the process of being open to discovery, to learning new things, finding out the old things you thought were wrong, or sometimes finding out they were right, but that's in my case less common, that that's just a a joyful way of living for me. and. A few years ago, I began writing about education more directly because of my job, I guess, as president. I'm a historian. I'm an intellectual historian. And my first few books were about how people make sense of the past and do a lot of teaching around memory and trauma and ideas around history and memory. But a decade or so ago, I started getting interested in taking the small pieces of writing I was doing on education and doing something a little bit more substantial. I wrote a book called Beyond the University, Why Liberal Education Matters. That was a lot of fun for me because my other historical work was in Europe and mostly in France and some on psychoanalysis. But writing about liberal education and trying to articulate a a pragmatic view of liberal education in an American context was both a great challenge and, and lots of fun. That book came out almost 10 years ago, with Yale University Press. And then I worked on another one called Safe Enough Spaces. Uh, It's about political correctness and free speech on college campuses. And then my editor at Yale, a wonderful Jennifer Banks, herself a great author, she said, I have this idea about doing a book about the student." And I think you're the guy to write it. I thought about it. I was working on another book actually at the time. And I thought, well, if I do it, I'll do it historically because that's the kind of way I think. And I wrote a proposal for Yale about an examination of the idea of the student from its ancient roots to its contemporary practices. And they liked the proposal, so I wrote this book. And again, it was a lot of fun because I had to learn so much. It it starts off with uh, an examination of three iconic teachers, Confucius, Socrates, and Jesus. And I look at the ways in which each of those teachers encouraged a certain kind of student. In the case of Confucius, the student as follower, someone who will take on the path that you've developed, In the case of Socrates, the student as critical interlocutor or critical conversation partner, someone who will, in dialogue with you, learn what they don't know, how to take things apart. And in the case of Jesus, the apostles I look at, trying to imitate a way of life, to transform themselves, to strive towards being The kind of person that Jesus incarnated. And so that's the beginning of the book, these models of studenthood, if I could use that word, and being a teacher. And then I I look at the way in which these ideas reverberate in the West across a long period of time. So I'm interested in the idea of the student before there were really schools, like what did we expect young people to learn even when they weren't going to school? I'm interested in the idea of the apprentice, I have a chapter where I look at this student as someone who's just learning a very specific thing. Like I'm learning to make coffee cups. You know, I'm an apprentice for a cup maker. They they don't really care about my spiritual health so much or my whole person education. I want to learn how to make a better coffee cup. And I look at some failed apprentices, actually, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Benjamin Franklin. I was interested in the ways women are treated as students versus men, so I write about that. And also how a category of human beings existed in the early modern period that couldn't be students. They weren't allowed to be students because if they were students, it would violate all the other rules about them. And those were enslaved peoples. When people are enslaved, they're denied the very possibility of learning. And so I I write about these philosophers who otherwise were quite astute, how they bent themselves into contortions to deny the possibility that enslaved Black people could learn, could be students. So that's all in that pre-modern period. And then The big turn in the book, the major point of the book, is that in the modern period, in the second half of the 1700s, up until our own day, the idea of being a student gets connected to the idea of freedom. And that freedom means thinking for yourself in the company of others. Learning from a teacher to think for yourself. This is a very different notion than just being able to make a coffee cup or create your own household. It's both about skills, but also about your spiritual maturity, your freedom of speech. And so uh, I trace the idea of the student as someone who's practicing freedom through the second half of the 1800s into the contemporary world of college students, how they try to be free, how they try to break the rules, how they try to learn what it means to not be immature anymore, to really come into their own as people. And I think for me, that's the core of the idea of the student, coming into your own as a person in the company of others, but being able to stand on your own feet, intellectually, emotionally, and maybe even spiritually.
1: Yeah, you open up a lot of questions, which I think all the best teaching does. It makes you curious to learn even more and then start you off on your own quest. I want to, of course, address some of those questions because you're talking about the very foundation of learning and what's the purpose of learning. Obviously, there's really important questions as like the future of education. And I hope it'll go into AI and, and all those different things. We have machine learning now. We have this whole spectrum. But it was interesting that you mentioned certain sectors of the population at one point, women or enslaved people not having access to education and you said learning is freedom and then enslaved people are not free so for them to learn was a kind of to question the whole hierarchy and the whole system that enslaved them and so it it opens up my mind to think of the ways in which you know if we're denied education, historically, those who have been denied education, if you say it's peoples, they found other ways to teach. Like it could be through song. They could be passing messages. You know, it's kind of embedded. And I think some of the best learning does have been these educational studies, which you explore. Some of the deepest learning happens in those formative times, like would you say mother and child, when we're playing, learning is a form of play and joy and what that adds to the learning process and make Making it really memorable.
2: Yeah, well, there are different ideas of this over the uh, ages, of course. We now know that people learn in all kinds of ways. And from my perspective in the book, I'm I'm really interested in how sometimes people learn to follow a path, how sometimes they learn to be critical, and sometimes they learn to imitate. And that can happen in play. It can happen in training. It can happen in all sorts of ways. And the goal in the West, in the pre-modern period, was that the person would eventually become independent enough to set up their own life. And that meant, you know, to make a living, really, or to have your own children and to be part of a community, to integrate into a village or a town. I go over just some of the educational theories that grew up around these issues over time, some of them arguing that a a child always learns by experience, that we're blank slates and that we just... acquire knowledge or inhabit through experience. Others thought, no, you're born with certain equipment, like a seed that blooms in the person. In the 1700s, there's definitely an effort to think about how a a young person can learn without being indoctrinated. And that's already happening in the 1700s. Prior to that, you, you were kind of expected to be indoctrinated. Not everyone, not all the time, but the idea was that you would learn to follow the rules your parents and their generation follow. By the time you get to the 1700s, it's just a much deeper reservoir of a discourse about learning without having to follow someone else. And for someone like Rousseau, that comes certainly through play, that a good teacher sets things up so you discover things on your own. You think you're doing it on your own. Teacher may choreograph it somewhat, but you're discovering things on your own. Very different from getting drilled by an instructor to remember something. But I do think certainly throughout this period, informal learning is absolutely crucial for young people and not just young people, right? That we continue to learn in all sorts of ways that are indirect or informal. There are lots of theories over this long period of time that try to account for the fact that people seem to learn a lot at a certain point in their lives and then get solidified in their thinking and not take in too many new ideas as they get older. And we may talk about this a little bit later, but the notion of the perpetual student, which I'm very fond of, is the person who doesn't fall into that trap, that the perpetual student is the person who continues to be surprised by the world and learns new things and is encouraged to keep their mind so open that they're able to develop new habits of spirit and of of mind.
1: Yeah, and I think, I mean, I love learning for learning's sake and the joy of learning, which I tie to creativity, being able to make then something out of what I learn. But I think it's also just smart to, as we face, these new challenges of this century, we need to have adaptive intelligence. And that means being a perpetual learner because the landscape is changing and we have to constantly be adapting to our environments. So I think it's important to go back and you've touched on this, of course, just ask the, even the basic questions while we're learning about the world, just basic questions to bring it back to finding out who am I? Am I learning to take my place in an economic model? What is the purpose of learning and what is intelligence? And what do we mean then by creative intelligence versus you know mm-hmm. processing speed? What is imagination and what is consciousness? These are all these questions that we're asking ourselves now, especially as we face the promises and risks of new technologies like AI and automation.
2: Yeah. Uh, there's definitely a shift that occurs in the West from education is really gi- giving you the ability to take your place in the society to education as being able to create your space in society. And so for most of human history in the West, the education was to show you where you would fit in. And you may have had a couple of options or not, but you were going to fit in. And you were educated in such a way as to enable that fitting. And in the modern period, that changes. It's less about fitting in. Then it is about opening a space for flourishing or for creativity or for freedom. And I spend a, a fair amount of time in the book on college students and those privileged folks who you know, get to extend their formal education in ways that are supposed to open themselves up to a creativity transformation and eventually participation in the system that creates their schools in the first place. Now, that participation can be very critical. I, I write about the times in American higher education when college students rebel against the system, they're being educated to, to join. Spends spends some time, especially on the 1960s in the United States, in which the education becomes anti-integration, anti-establishment, and how exciting and vital a period that was, but also short-lived in, in many respects. So... The pressure these days, as you suggest, is that the student as someone who learns to think for themselves is confronted with tools of thinking, especially generative language models of artificial intelligence, tools of thinking that will do it all for you. And so what does it mean to be a student if what you learn to do is simply ask a machine better questions? Is that a step? forward or a step backward in the idea of the student. I tend to think it's, it's too early to know, but I do fear that it could be a step backward in the following sense that the tool can take over for us. Our thinking, I, I tell my students in my class this semester that you, you, you don't want to outsource your thinking, but that's like outsourcing your humanity. But some of them do want to outsource their thinking because thinking is hard work, strenuous, And maybe you'd rather not do that. But to me, that's a great abdication of creativity and humanity. I don't think it has to be that way. I think we can actually use these tools just like we use calculators, let's say, or other shortcuts in thinking. And we will, for sure. I don't think there's any putting that genie back in the bottle. But I I do worry that we now have this enormous temptation to stop thinking, to stop learning, and to just provide prompts to a machine that'll do it for us you know it's like the the garden of eden story all over again ai is that tree of knowledge you can just take it the strenuous work of growing up and thinking for yourself is no longer that important but i fear if that happens then we will be in a situation of repetition imitation and we'll find ourselves in the position of enslaved peoples unable to learn because the tool learns for us.
1: Indeed. I just had a conversation with Alan Steele, a science fiction author, who was optimistic about technology. But he says, oh, well, the new technologies won't get rid of us. We'll just be like their pets, like a puppy. <laughs> I said, I don't know if that's good. I don't want to be. I mean, I like dogs, but you know, I just want to see. Great.
2: More. It's a great metaphor, I think, actually. I had never thought of this, but I'm so glad you mentioned it because I think it's a great metaphor. There are people who would like to be pet. You get fed, you get stroked, you get walked. To me, it's a nightmare scenario of losing your freedom, but it's a trade-off. Like my dog, she doesn't have that much freedom. She was like she has a really nice life, but the power dynamics are pretty clear. So I think that that doesn't have to be that way. It seems to me that we can actually continue to use our practice of freedom Along with the tools that technology gives us, rather than abdicate our freedom so that technology can do what our, technology can do what the technology decides to do. That would be, I think, a, a real loss.
1: Yeah. And the criticism towards some education models is that it's designed, it's teaching us about a world that's maybe won't but the world is changing so quickly is no longer teaching people for the future it's teaching us for a past and I encounter of course a number of students who come to us I feel lucky because I know a lot of people, are very, you know, smart, accomplished people, and I can introduce them to a kind of one-on-one that helps them on their career pathways. And, and I've been very happy to do that. Sometimes you don't always get that in the big classroom. So it's that sometimes a lack of vocational training. You know, I really believe that the humanities and all of these disciplines and interdisciplinary education, the all these things we have to be teaching for adaptive intelligence. We have to be teaching people for the future, future technologies more, but I think that some pe- students felt hard done by, and they're so tired, they want to use the chat GPT to help them get along and maybe that so they can hunt for jobs or something. But shortcuts, there's always going to be a drawback on that, I, I do feel.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think shortcuts, they're very convenient, but convenience is not the only value. If it becomes the only value, I, I think we live in an impoverished world. I, 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 I should say, though, that I think a a really important feature of learning is to not lose the past. In other words, that it's not just about preparing for the future. It's also about remembrance and recollection and having some connection to the past. Not everybody feels that way, of course, and, and some people feel that way more strongly than others, but I think it would be... A shame to lose our desire to connect to things that occurred before us. AI, at the moment, is very good at inventing pasts and inventing or hallucinating worlds that might be, but not necessarily did not certainly happen. I think the effort to construct a past that you can live with is really an important feature of, of being human. In the last couple of hundred years now, and what I mean by that is that. You know even in like in a therapeutic encounter you can imagine maybe this analogy works you can imagine a therapeutic encounter where you say uh, you know every time i get close to someone i panic and i I can't work and i can't eat every time i get close to someone especially when i like them and then i say oh here's a prescription take this pill and you won't panic that's a tool but many people say well i want to know why i'm doing this like what about it? What is it about my life that has led me to panic anytime someone gets close to me? Well, some people say, I don't care what happened. Here's the prescription. This is a version of AI. Here's your prescription. Take the pill and no more panic. You won't feel much desire, but you won't feel any panic either. Some people take that trade off. I, I think it's an enormous value in, in that question. Like, why do I feel this way? How did I come to be the person I am? And trying to answer that question rather than just getting the, the script to relieve, to take a shortcut. And so when I talk to my students about AI, I say, of course you can use it, you can as long as you cite it. But what I worry about is they won't wrestle with the poem or the novel. They won't even have to read it. They just ask you, what is the novel about? That's a shortcut. But you deny yourself the pleasure and the this kind of deep emotional satisfaction that comes from wrestling with a work of art or a, a story. And of course, not everybody feels that way, but I think a lot of people do, and I would hate to lose that feeling. I mean, I'm a person who, I go to a Torah study on, on Saturdays, and we read the same book every year. we we'll just go around and around, and, and every year I just feel like I'm learning something different. I could just ask for a summary, then I would not engage in this very human practice of wrestling with an, a text or an image or a work of art to, to generate meaning from it.
1: Yeah. You really speak of, you know, there's experiential learning. It's the journey. It's the search and not the arrival because and we could just take a plane there, but we could walk on foot and we can discover the landscape and the cultures and we could pass through history and time and stories. So there is really that uh, difference between knowing the history, feeling connected to the past and traditions, as opposed to getting just the answer or, you know, using a machine to accomplish it for you. And I I think it's worth the time. I think that there is a, I mean, you make a strong case for the importance of the humanities, but just tell me what for you is the importance of the humanities? I know that you even started a humanities center way back when you were at Scripps College. You've always been interested in this and interdisciplinary study.
2: Yes. I, I had the great luck to be an undergraduate at Wesleyan in the 70s. And we have had something here called the Center for Humanities that was established in the really the late 50s. And they've just brought people from all kinds of disciplines. And I would always go to uh, the lectures on Monday nights and didn't understand a thing, but wrestling with these big questions about the human, about our relationship to the animal world, our relationship to the ecological world, the questions of meaning, of memory, and learning to take pleasure, learning to have questions posed to me by works of art. I think that's, for me, that's been a great part of the humanities. And I always found that being too tied to one discipline really got in the way of asking a range of questions that you might want to pursue. And so at Wesleyan, as an undergrad, they encouraged me to develop my own major because I was basically, because I couldn't decide between psychology, history, and philosophy. So I created a major out of the three of them. And at the time I thought I was getting away with something, but in fact, it was like, I've been writing about that intersection for 40 years, practically now. Similarly, when I was a graduate student of Karl Schursky's at, at Princeton, he encouraged me not to worry about, like, what field was I really in, but just to follow the questions, whether they led you to architecture or to painting or to science or to politics. And that was a great gift I found. And I try to pass it along to my students today. And at and I've been president now for more than 15 years. And we've created, I think, six new interdisciplinary colleges in that period. There were two when I started and uh, they had been there for 50 years, but we have created a college of the environment. A college of film and the moving image, a college of education, college of integrated sciences, college of East Asian studies, and a college of design and engineering, the newest one. And I I love these things because they bring different disciplines. You know, you have in the college of the environment, you can have a biologist, a dancer, an anthropologist, and an economist, and they're all worrying about a certain problem in environmental studies, but they come at it from different perspectives and they join together uh, in their work that seems to me extremely exciting. The humanities has always encouraged this kind of messy inquiry. Of course, you do need some skills, right? You, you need language skills and you need sometimes quantitative analysis skills. You need all kinds of things to, to make progress. And that's why teams are so important. You don't have to have all the skills yourself, but you, if you're on a good team, somebody has quantitative skills and someone has language skills. Someone knows how to read text. Someone knows the history and politics. These are all great uh, adventures when you're with a team like that. And the humanities generally, I think today, they flourish when they remind students that through their study, we can pursue and create meaning. Because I think we are uh, creatures who still crave meaning and strive to create it or discover it, depending on the case.
1: I agree. We also encourage students to embrace learning as a continuous journey and highlight the importance of reading and seeking knowledge outside of formal educational settings.
0: This conversation between me and Michael is one that I think rings on a lot of college campuses today. Students pursuing their degrees are often questioning the value of their education, of learning, of even asking questions as they prepare to go out into the world. A tension that I think AI and new technologies only make harder to face. The idea of outsourcing your thinking is an attractive one. I see it in my friends' faces when they charge themselves from class to work and back to class in their seemingly endless cycles. And it's easy to forget the joy in learning. But what I think Michael and Mia do so well is that they don't reject the convenience that comes with AI. They invite you to think about your value system, whether convenience really is what we should do most important. They invite you to enjoy the journey, to enjoy being a lifelong learner. And when I look at it that way, I can be excited about spending hours in books and arts and history. I can be excited about being a lifelong student. It makes me excited to be one now. And now, back to the interview.
1: You know, we have this One Planet podcast, and how we can communicate the climate science and encourage engagement and encourage people to take action is really important for us. What do you feel is the importance of the environmental humanities? You wrote extensively about Emerson. who. wrote so movingly about nature, and I'd love to hear about more of your projects on the environmental humanities.
2: Well, through this College of the Environment, our faculty and students really can bring together traditional humanities disciplines and the scientific study of issues around energy, around pollution, around climate change. I'll give you a couple of examples that my, my, my wife is in a literature program, a college of letters, but... Her own work has been, in the last 20 years, has been in animal studies. And so her name is Kari Weil, and she wrote a book called Thinking Animals 20 years ago, early on in the days of animal studies. When she was in the College of the Environment for a year, everyone was working on biosebiotics and the, the notion that how do different kinds of life forms communicate with each other and communicate with us? What are the signals that animals send to each other? How do trees signal to each other? How do birds song? how is it a form of language if it is a form of language? And so they had writers and artists and scientists all working together on this problem of kind of interspecies communication and what does communication in nature look like if you break out of the narrow human-centric perspective? We've also done a great project with artists, like new landscapes, like landscape artists. But one I'm thinking of especially is with a woman named Alison Orr. Is a choreographer. I guess based in Texas mostly. And what she does is she works with people who work in everything from sanitation to water and power, and they choreograph their work environment. They did choreography based on their work environment in relation to environmental concerns. And when I first heard about this, I thought this is never going to work with these. You know, I know these the, the guys who are working down in water and power in Middletown. But I tell you, they they did a huge festival down at the river highlighting environmental issues. And people who were cleaning pipes or driving trucks or taking care of flood control, they all became artists as part of this piece. And so what you get there is this intersection of the humanities and the arts and the environment, I think, in very powerful and memorable ways.
1: I think that it's really important that everyone has the capacity to be it an artist and everyone is creative in their own way and especially when you honor people who might be doing essential work or uh, they don't see themselves as being artful but then they understand wow there is actually uh, a grace and a rhythm to all these things it's it's so true actually if you cover your ears and you watch people like walking you can see their choreography so i dance and so i appreciate that
2: yes i'll give you this one, the one example that comes to mind just the what you're saying there is this a man here who's been custodian for a long time. And in this piece, he was washing a window and he chose the music and it was during COVID. So the audience was outside watching him from the outside and he's cleaning the window. And it was this beautiful John Coltrane piece. And it was so powerful. And I think for him also ennobling, you know, this is his work and it was beautiful. If you put yourself in the right frame of mind, you saw how creative it was and how essential it was. And Allison, I mean, she's just a genius at teasing these things out, especially when people say, oh, I don't, I'm not an artist. And I say, well, actually, you know, you can be an artist. You are an artist.
1: Yeah, that's important. I think that it gives us, particularly when we talk about the challenges that we face, you know, number one, big one is the climate change. We have to feel ennobled because it's going to be a struggle. It's going to be sacrifices to get, you know, we have a finite resources on this planet and we have to manage them well. But if you can feel that there's something, you take pride in it. There's something beautiful. There's also something beautiful in minimizing our consumption. And there's something, you know... Comparing back to this so you appreciate and you value what is essential, it's it's so important. I liked hearing about the biosymbiotics because I think that a lot of people who are creating robotics and technologies, they study this, you know, architects study the natural world to see and you look at the natural world and you see like a flower in fact is is smart you know it opens its its petals when the sun is out it collects energy and it closes it turns to where it can get energy and we now as we think about the future of cities we're like talking about intelligence and learning our buildings new buildings are getting smart our objects the things that we own our homes are getting smart or we're you know those of us who are living in newer uh, buildings, we have not just the potential to be lifelong learners, so does everything around us. So this is a strange thing. We're teaching our objects.
2: Yes. And they teach us back, right? What we were talking about before with AI, the threat that we would become objects too. And I think it's important to have a capacious sense of agency and look at how different kinds of living things or even parts of the built environment may have a kind of agency I mean, that's, I think, an interesting question. I, I've heard thoughtful people talk about it in interesting ways. I'm very concerned with, with making sure, as we think about learning and being a student, that we preserve the sense of agency for the student. That I think it's Nietzsche who says, your teacher should be your liberator. And so that, in the end, you're more free because of what you've learned. And I think it's John Baltasari, the great conceptual artist and art professor. People said, John, you had all these great students, and how did you learn to be a great art teacher? And he said, teaching art means learning how to get out of the way. I I think that's when the, the agency or freedom of the student can really be practiced
1: indeed we're in this formative period and i think that there also there's that responsibility and you must feel that as an educator as well this ethical and moral responsibility what can we as educators or as institutions how can we help nudge if, as long as we're on this topic of technology how can we help ensure that say the humanities are part of that design process and how are our human values our humanistic values implanted in that not just so that you know these new technologies make the technologists money, which fine, we live in a capitalist society, but how can we ensure that they really reflect the values? They're not just built for the technologists, it's the users. How do they define who we are, help us live more fulfilled and happy lives, and retain the balance with the planet?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. We we started this College of Design and Engineering study in part to make sure that this process of design and engineering is not divorced from humanistic inquiry, humanistic values. Some of my colleagues thought, how could you have engineering in a liberal arts college? And my view was having come from an art school where we did design engineering, that you don't want to isolate yourself as a humanist from technology and design engineering. You actually want to be in conversation with them, that it can be productive and powerful. But if we in the humanities isolate ourselves from the practical world and from the built environment, I think we will uh, squander the power of the humanities. I think the power of the humanities comes from its ability to be in dialogue with the development of technology, to be in dialogue with politics, to be in dialogue with economics, as well as for the in-depth study of texts and images and objects.
1: And you come from an educational family. You already mentioned your wife. Tell us a little bit about your background.
2: I'm the first generation in my family to go to college. My father was a furrier. He made fur coats and his father was a furrier. So when I grew up, I used to go to work with my father in a factory that made coats in New York City. And you know we called the schmata business. And he actually bought and sold used fur coats and repaired them. And My mother sold clothes in the basement of her house to make extra money. I don't know. that was not exactly proper. And I went to college. I mean, my parents didn't know anything about college at all. In fact, my first semester at Wesleyan, I had never met anyone who had been to a private school who hadn't been kicked out of the public school. So I met all these fancy kids who had gone to Exeter and showed and Hotchkiss. And I thought, oh, you poor kids, you all got kicked out of your schools. Of course not. They were fancy people. But... My first vacation from Washington, I worked for so hard as a student because I had a lot to learn. I had to go to work with my dad the first day back, which meant like 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning heading to the train. And uh, I never went back again because I got a job on campus. like in an art gallery. It was much easier than working in a fur factory. So my background was this kind of practical, business-oriented, this small business folks. And then at Wesley, and I I mean, I was a failed athlete in high school, so I became very bookish and I was a good student, but I remember precisely when I realized that I wanted to continue academic work because I had hurt my back the summer before my senior year. I was laid up in Berkeley, California, reading a a history of philosophy book, and I thought, this is great. And then I realized, wait a minute, this is what I want to do. I want to study which was weird in my background. you know. I, had, I met very few of any people who had gone to college before I got to college. And yet I really loved it. And I had incredibly wonderful teachers, both here at Wesleyan and then at Princeton for graduate school. And they were very encouraging. Well, they were kind of encouraging, I should say. When I was graduating from Wesleyan, my teachers said, and I told them I thought I was going to graduate school. They said, you'll never get a job, is what they told me. You'll never get a job. And I said to my advisor, who really liked me, I loved him. I, I said, but maybe if I work really hard, because he said something like 1% of the students will get jobs. And I said, if I work really hard, maybe that will be me. And he said, that, my dear, is a bourgeois myth. And I always remember that, because that was Ed Wesley, and That was the worst thing you could say to someone. So I said, oh, no, not a bourgeois myth. So I was very fortunate. I got a job in a psychiatric hospital when I was graduating, but then I got a fellowship at Princeton for history. And I didn't know enough to know that I could have delayed going to Princeton. I could have stayed and taken this job at Yale in a hospital, but I was very lucky because I went to Princeton and then I was the last student of this this historian called Shursky. And that was just a wonderful break for me. And I had I worked with Natalie Davis, who just died yesterday, actually. It was in the mid-90s, a wonderful historian. I did a field in women's history with her and with Richard Rorty in philosophy, Sheldon Wolin in political theory. I was really a great... I didn't like Princeton as as an environment very much, but Wesleyan was much more exciting. But I had great teachers that Princeton made available to me. And so I had done a, a senior thesis on Sigmund Freud and politics which became a book and then became an exhibition. I wrote my dissertation on French philosophy of history, the French Hegelians. So very far afield from what I do now, but at the, the work on psychoanalysis on Freud and the work on French philosophy was really all about how people make sense of the past. That continued in my next couple of books. I did a book on ruins when I was at the Getty. I did two books on memory and trauma, looking at film and at literature as well as a history. And and then I somehow got hoodwinked into being an administrator. I've enjoyed the opportunity to, in my current position, help other people do their work and try to do a little bit myself of my own. But... My job is mostly to get resources to people who have good ideas. Give them the resources to do their work.
1: So I know that you still teach, and you seem always to be a lifelong learner. I'm wondering for those of us who aren't lucky to remain within this university environment, so having a structured lifelong learning. Traditionally, it's been that we've looked towards, you know, journalism, long-form journalism, to really find out about the world. Now. Journalism and newspapers are soon to be a thing of the past, at least the paper ones. So the fourth estate is under threat. People are drowning in so many things they could read, but they don't know what to believe. Fake news. You can see a video and you don't even know if that's real. So how do you find your news? What are your reflections on the future of journalism? How can we remain critical thinkers when we're not even sure about the sources of our information?
2: Yeah, it's such a great question. I, I don't know that I have anything particularly profound to say about it. I get my information from sources that I've grown to trust somewhat. In other words, I trust them somewhat. It's going to be critical. Like I do love reading newspapers. I love reading book reviews because I can't read all the books that I'd like to. So I spend a lot of time reading book reviews and essays about books. I asked my friends whose taste I respect about things to read. I just was in China last week, and so I had a lot of plain time. So I asked my friend, Mervé Emre, who's here at Wesleyan now and is a critic at The New Yorker. I said, I want to read Jan Foster, who just won the Nobel Prize in Literature. And I wanted a shortcut because I hadn't read any issues in it. You have to read Septology, which is the seven volumes. I had 25 hours on a plane. So I take my Kindle because I can't carry seven or 10 books. I always have to have a lot of books with me in case I get stuck somewhere. And it was an incredible joy, incredible, beautiful to immerse oneself in a book over many hours, a book that has really no plot, but is just exquisite. And beautiful. And then I also brought with me a demon copperfield, this big sprawling novel about Appalachia. So, on the one hand, I had this very lyrical, poetic book, and then this other very plot driven book. And I felt I wouldn't mind going around the world again in a plane because I, I got to read all this stuff. And then I find out about, I actually still use, despite Mr. Musk, I still use a Twitter for bibliography because I, I find that people are recommending essays in magazines that maybe I don't subscribe to, but I could could track down. And I really do try to read as much as I can. I wish I had more time for poetry and fiction than I do, but I turn to people I trust and then to editors that I trust. Sometimes they disappoint me. In other words, I'll read something and I think it's badly edited or I find out it's not what I thought it was. But I, I think the world that sometimes people celebrate without gatekeepers, is a hard world to live in because you don't get a filters that you trust. You just get the loudest noise or the, the one that has the most money behind it. I try to follow critics and writers and artists who I've come to trust enough to engage with. You don't have to totally trust them. We don't have to agree on everything for sure, but I trust them enough to engage with them. There's not enough hours in the day to do all that, but it's fun to try.
1: Speaking of Elon Musk, one of his many companies is Neuralink, and I, this offers promises for some who are very much into superintelligence or posthumanity or neural implants. So this offer is another, you know, going deeper into that. What is intelligence, and what would you prepared to do to increase the capacity of your mind?
2: Yeah, I guess it's not something that I find attractive, but there are people who do, and that's for, I, there are people who like to work out all the time and build up muscles so they look like not really human anymore. And, and there will be people who try to do that with their mental capacity. I'm not sure it's intelligence, it's processing for sure. I, I don't covet more processing speed actually myself. I, I would like to have more time to dwell on something rather than to race through it. So I wish I had more time for contemplation, but I don't need a neural link for that. I just need to sit quietly a little bit more and to spend time with things. I was reading, you mentioned Emerson before, and I I love reading Emerson because it takes time. You have to slow yourself down. And Lewis Hyde had a recent essay about Thoreau, a similarly intensive thinker that you have to adjust your expectations for change and stimuli when you read someone like Thoreau. Or like Jan Fossa, you have to pay attention differently and not just more quickly. And I'm very interested in that slowing down, I guess, rather than speeding up.
1: Yeah, it reveals, things get revealed to us on Second, deeper glance. And I think that's important. I mean, there have been studies, as you know, and you've probably observed through subsequent generations of students the way their neuroplasticity, they've grown up with devices. And so it wasn't the world of paper that we were born into. I mean, I remember still going to the library and doing my research that way. And then, well, it's easier on the internet, but you don't have to try as hard. And there's something nice we learn in silence. I feel?
2: Yeah. No, I I think so. I I teach a course in philosophy in the movies. I've taught it forever for 30 years and mostly old films. And I used to bring them on a laser disc, you know, and these are films they wouldn't be able to see without me. So I felt very virtuous. Now, of course, they can see whatever they want, but they they haven't seen these old films of the 30s and 40s. And one of their first reactions is they're not fast enough or they don't seem realistic because they're used to a certain kind of Hollywood style. And At first, I just despaired about this because these are great works of art in my view and it's hard for the student to access them. But in fact, with a little encouragement, that's my job as a teacher, they really grow to appreciate these. They have to slow themselves down. They have to change their expectation. But they're 20 years old. They can do that. If you encourage them to do it, teach them to do it. And so I I do have a lot of hope that young people will uh, find ways to access different, different registers of meaning. And not just the ones that are sent to them in the most fastest ways.
1: Indeed. It's also funny to look back at those old films, the Pathé newsreels, or people who have been seen by a camera for the first time and are seeing a camera for the first time. And it's the innocence, you know, adults. It's like an animal looking at themselves in the mirror.
2: Yes, for sure.
1: Universities have become politicized spaces. You wrote about uh, safe enough spaces. I mean, there's critical race theory. People question the canon. What is the canon? So what are your reflections on including a diversity of voices and also managing these difference?
2: Yeah, I wrote this book, Safe Enough Spaces, because I do think it's important for students to develop resilience and to be able to deal with ideas that they find uncongenial and not just to expect to be protected from those ideas. Uh, I also think they should be protected from harassment and from intimidation, but not from offensiveness or inappropriateness or from disagreement. I have many students who come here expecting protection, but they quickly learn most of the time. They quickly learn that protection is a very dubious virtue that it infantilizes them and makes them weaker actually than they would be otherwise and makes them more dependent on protectors than they should, should be. And, and so I think the, the, the canon yeah. is always subject to change. At Wesleyan these days, and, and many schools like it, every third course is about anti-colonialism. Uh, every fourth course is about minoritized communities. There's something good about that for sure, but there's also a kind of a new group think that I think the pendulum will swing back again. I think there is an intense presentism in the universities that people, don't spend enough time thinking about what they can learn from the past. It's very easy to condescend to the past for contemporary teachers and their students to think they know better than a philosopher from 200 years ago, just because they happen to be born now. And sometimes they know better. They know something's better, but lots of times they don't. And, and so trying to break them from those prejudices and to have them develop an open mind, I think is really key. I tend to teach great books in the Western tradition, or good enough books, maybe I should say, from Aquinas to Rousseau, to Jane Austen, to Mary Wollstonecraft, and in the I try to teach works that deal with minoritized communities or trans communities or race issues. And I find my students are very capable of thinking about a diversity of points of view. I, I think anytime a government tries to tell you what you can and can't teach, you have to be very wary. Actually, you have to try to fight them from telling you what to teach. Although I do think that schools like mine have a, a prejudice to the left and, and that we have a bias that we should try to correct for. I don't think it's the government's business to help us do that. I think it's the professor's business to try to create an environment where a variety of ideas can be explored so that you have a better chance to arrive at an idea that works for you and for your community.
1: Well, thank you so much, uh, Michael S. Roth, for sharing these variety of ideas and uh, allowing us to explore your values, uh, your passion for lifelong learning and reflections on the importance of the humanities and education, helping us understand the past so that we can ensure we live a positive future. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet podcast and the creative process.
2: Thank you. Thanks very much for having me.
0: The Creative Process podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producers on this episode were Sophie Garnier and Arushi Gupta. The Creative Process is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Katie Foster. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.